Do you feel the world is broken? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? I don't know all the experiences of your lives, but these have been some of mine. I felt that the world was broken when my grandpa died when I was 12 years old. He lived next door. He'd play with me in the backyard when I was little. He preached almost every Sunday at our church. He had tomato growing competitions with my dad. He'd pop over on a Saturday morning sometime, like the morning of the day he died, just to say hi and see how we were doing. Then he was gone. My world was broken. I felt the world was broken when we got the news that Maggie was throwing up randomly in the mornings because she had a brain tumor. When the doctor said, we're going to do a long surgery to get it out, when she woke up and had so many struggles recovering from that surgery, and I'm so thankful that she's doing well now, but for so long during her treatment and even after, in lots of different ways, my world was broken. I felt the world was broken when Kelly got the news that she had stage 4 cancer and the doctors had little hope of her recovery. When everything we tried failed, chemo, supplements, diet, everything. The morning that she died, I felt that the world was broken. What about you? When have you felt that the world is broken? When have you wanted to see it all made new, maybe to go back, though you know you can't go back, maybe for things right now just to get a little bit better? Sometimes we think the problem is our circumstances. If I could find a better job, if the person I love is healthy again, if I could fix this relationship that's a mess. If we think that the problem is our situation, then the solution is for that circumstance to change. In reality, the root problem with the world is sin. Trouble isn't always directly caused by your sin or my sin, but even when it isn't, there's still the fact that sin exists in the world and that things are broken because of it. So if the problem's sin, what's the solution? Turn with me to Revelation 4. I started out asking, what do you feel or, or what do you wish could change to be different? But we can't stop there. We have to look beyond what we feel or what we think or the things that we want to be different to God is the answer. And John looks at the beginning of his book, and he says, Blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things that are written in it, for the time is near. That's Revelation 1, verse 3. From these two chapters, Revelation 4 and 5, I think we need to behold the one who is worthy. Worthy of what? Worthy of our worship. We see, first of all, from chapter 4, that God the Father is worthy of our worship. John writes and, and sees this scene in heaven, amazing things, remarkable things, mysterious things. But he points us beyond all those things, which is where we sometimes get stuck. What does this mean? Who is this group of people or, or beings? What, why is it described in this way? John, I think, wants us to focus on the fact that God is worthy because of who he is. Notice the declaration of the living creatures in verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. He is worthy because He is the Almighty. What does that word Almighty means? mean? It means that He is all-powerful. You and I are not all-powerful. 
I've been moving a lot of boxes and things the last couple of weeks. And I've realized that I am not particularly old, but I'm old enough to know that when I moved a lot of boxes, I'm going to be sore and tired. Uh, and that's true for all of us. Our strength runs out. God is almighty. His power has no limit. His strength doesn't fail. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't have to sleep. He is almighty. For that reason, he is worthy. He is eternal. He was, and he is, and he is to come. And you and I can't claim that. We have a beginning, we have an end in terms of our life here on this earth. Maybe it's been five years. Maybe it's been ten years. Maybe it's been 90 years, but all of us have been here for a specific amount of time. And all of us, our lives here on this earth will have a beginning and they will have an end. But God is spoken of as the one who is, who was, who is, who is to come. God's kind of like when you're in math class and you have that description of the number line and they say it goes this way and it goes this way and there's no place where it stops and no place where it ends. You say, well, that's... You don't understand that when you're in fourth grade or whenever they start talking about those things. And similarly, it's hard for us to grasp the fact that God has no beginning and no end, but the Bible says God is eternal. Because God is eternal, because of who He is, He is worthy. He's also worthy because of what He has done. Look at verse 11. The declaration of the 24 elders. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. God made all things. God made the world, as we see in the book of Genesis, merely by speaking it into existence. God made all of these other different sorts of things. God made the world. And God sustains the world. The reason that the world keeps going around the sun, the reason that it keeps spinning, the reason that it has not fallen apart is not ultimately due to human effort. It's not due to what we do or don't do to try to change what is happening with the climate. It's not a result of what we do or don't do to try to understand the way that the world functions. Because even some of these really basic things about the way the world works are still mysteries to us. Why don't we float up away into space? Scientists would say gravity. What is gravity? The force that keeps you from flying up into space. We don't know why it works this way. We just, don't, we just know that it does. Why does it work this way? Because that's the way God made it to work. Why is it here? Because God put it here. God is worthy because of who he is. God is worthy because of what he has done. So what's the proper response? To worship him as those in heaven do. Verse 9, the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne. Verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, making these declarations over and over. God the Father is worthy of our worship. He's eternal. He's the creator of all that exists. But this passage reveals another important truth alongside that one. Jesus is worthy of worship just as much as God the Father. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit deserve worship as one God, three persons. 
Before we get to Revelation 5, I'll just make the comment that we don't see uh, the Spirit in the same way in these passages that we do, for example, in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, where it says, the Spirit says, here is the message, or chapter 22, where it says, the Spirit and the bride say, come. Uh, And so that doesn't mean that the triune God is not present throughout the book of Revelation. It just means the emphasis and the focus is on certain persons of the Godhead at one point versus another. Chapter 4 is primarily focused on God the Father. Chapter 5 is focused on God the Son. What does it say? God the Son is worthy of our worship. Same points. He is worthy because of who He is. There is this scene in chapter 5 where in the hand of God the Father sitting on the throne, there is a book, a scroll that is sealed. And the angel says, who can come and open the book? The seals that signify judgment and the beginning of the end times and all these sorts of things. Who is worthy to come and open the book and initiate all of these things that end in God reigning forever and dwelling with his people forever? Not you, not me, not John, not the angel. No one else could approach God to open the seals. And yet the Son, it says, is worthy to approach. Verse 5, it says, He has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Why is He worthy? Well, He's described in several different ways here. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and a lamb standing as if slain. We'll get to that third one in just a moment. But when He says He is the lion and the root, what does that refer to? Well, the lion refers back to Jacob's prophecy of Judah's descendant reigning as a king and comparing him to a lion back in Genesis 49. And so there's this expectation of people of Israel that their coming king from the tribe of Judah would come, would rule, would be powerful and mighty like a lion. Then we have the idea of the root of David. David is obviously David the king that we see in the Old Testament, the man after God's own heart, who nevertheless sinned, yet God restored. His descendants were promised to reign. Jesus is an heir of David, according to Matthew chapter 1. But as God, he existed before David or even Abraham. Matthew 22 and John 8 point this out. And so Isaiah speaks of the heir of David who would come and reign, but he is also the reason that David exists. He is the root of David and the branch from David. And this is a mystery that the Pharisees couldn't wrap their heads around in John 8, and nevertheless, the Bible proclaims it to be true. If Jesus is God, he has existed eternally, and so he is both before David and the reason that David is as king, and he is after David, the descendant of David, as a man who will come to reign. This truth is fulfilled in Revelation 19, verse 15, when he comes to reign with a rod of iron, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 11. So why is he worthy? He is worthy because essentially he is also God. He is worthy because he is the fulfillment of the prophecies God has made about what he will do. But he's also worthy because of what he has done. Verses 6 through 10 of Revelation 5 tell us that Jesus died for sinners. It says in verse 10, you were slain. In verse 6 and 12, there's a lamb standing as if slain. This picture goes back to Genesis chapter 22, the story of Abraham. God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, 
and give him to me as a sacrifice. Abraham is about to obey, and God has said, you pass the test, you're willing to give him, but I've provided a substitute in his place. Look over there, and there is a lamb caught in a thicket, a briar patch. Take and sacrifice that one instead. The imagery of the lamb was seen in the sacrificial system God gave to the people in the Old Testament by Moses, that sacrificing of lambs and all of these others was a picture of the blood that was demanded for life, the payment that was required for sin, and pointing to the work that God's own Son, Jesus, who is God, would come and do someday when he came to earth. He is the Lamb of God. John describes him as such and says, Behold the Lamb of God, John the Baptist, who takes away the sins of the world. And that's the next part here. He died for sinners to purchase them for God. It says this in verse 9, You were slain, he died, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Why did Jesus come to die? Jesus came to die not to accomplish some generic possibility of salvation, but to actually bring about salvation for people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Why does Revelation say it that way? Because sometimes we think about nations as being like the defining characteristic of the world and geography and all those sorts of things. But the reality is God is calling out for himself people from all the people groups throughout the world. And so if we think about um, Europe or if we think about North America or if we think about all of these other continents, there are dozens if not hundreds of people groups in every one of these. And the gospel is going forth to them and God is saving them and God is calling them out for himself. And the only reason that that's possible is because Jesus died to deal with sin for those people that God was going to save generations later. So what does that mean? That means that you and I are sinners. We started going astray when Adam and Eve ate the fruit that God said not to, when they said we're going to go our own way, when God said go this way, and we've continued that pattern ever since. It starts from birth, it continues throughout life, and apart from God intervening, we continue down that path, the end result of which is death and separation from God. But Jesus comes and dies for sinners, so that if a sinner hears the message proclaimed of repentance, which is what Jonah did when he goes through the city of Nineveh, he says, 40 days and God's judgment is coming, the city is going to be destroyed. The Apostle Paul says it a little bit differently to a different group of people, but same basic message. God commands that all people everywhere repent because a day is coming when God will judge the world by the man whom he's appointed, Jesus Christ. That day of judgment is coming, and you and I are going to be one side or the other of that judgment. On the side that says, I have received the forgiveness, I've been bought by the blood of Jesus, I am on God's side, or we're going to be over here and we're going to say, you know what, I've tried to live my life the right way, and I've more or less been a good person, at least by my reckoning, but there's bad things that I've done. You can't stand in the middle. It's one side or the other. You're with God or you're on your own. And if you're with God, what do you have for God to say, you're acceptable, you're worthy, if you will? 
Not your own worthiness, but Jesus' worthiness in your place. And if you come over here and you say, but I'm worthy by the things that I've done, God says, not good enough. Because God doesn't demand a C. God doesn't even demand an A. God demands perfection. Never have lied. Never have stolen. Never have lusted. Never have been angry without good reason. All of these things, God says, that's, that's my standard. And if we're honest, none of us lives up to that. But here's the hope that he offers instead. Jesus did all the things you could not do. You couldn't obey God. You couldn't be honest all the time. You couldn't be pure all the time. You couldn't love your neighbor all the time. Jesus did. So a passage like this says, stop trying to work your way to God. Stop running away from God. Come to God through Jesus. He's the only hope that you have. Why did Jesus die for sinners? Jesus didn't die for sinners so that sinners could keep being sinners but didn't get to go to heaven. Sometimes people have said, why did God kick Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden? Do you want eternal life separated from God? Would you want eternal life making the same foolish choices over and over and over again? God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden so that they did not continue to eat from the tree of life, so they were not stuck in their sinful state forever. God saves people not to leave them where they are. He saves them, verse 10, to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. To be a part of God's kingdom, to be servants of God, we see this in Revelation 12, 1 and 2, it says the Old Testament pattern was priest and sacrifice, and the other tribes would bring the sacrifice to the priest. Romans 12 says, in the system that God has established now in the New Testament church, you are the priest in the sense that you are serving God. You are the sacrifice in the sense that you are offering yourself up constantly to God in obedience. And God receives your worship all the time, not just when you bring the lamb, not just when you, when you bring the offering of your crops in the Old Testament. God saves people so that they were sinners, but now they're pure and holy and can approach Him as His ministers, His servants, His priests. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for sinners to purchase them for God. Jesus died for sinners to purchase them for God and make them part of His kingdom and priests to serve God. Jesus is worthy because of what He has done. So what is the proper response? We see it at the end of the chapter, verses 11 to 14. Worship both the Father and the Son as those in heaven do. The Lamb is worthy, verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The one on the throne is worthy. To him who sits on the throne, verse 13, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion. And we saw in chapter 4, verse 2, there was one on the throne and verse 9, they give glory and honor and thanks to the one on the throne. So what's the conclusion? Verses 13 and 14, Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. And so this day is an opportunity 
for us to remember the fact that Jesus died, but it says a lamb standing as if he was slain. Jesus isn't dead. If you worship the God of the Bible today, if you worship Jesus as part of the triune God that the Bible describes, you and I do not worship a dead God. Buddha's dead. Confucius is dead. Muhammad is dead. The founders of every major religion are dead. And they're not coming back. Jesus is alive. And that's the difference. We can worship gods that are dead, that are less than us, that are figments of our imagination, that are the work of our hands. We look down on people who worship sticks and rocks that they carved and, and patterned. But the reality is a lot of us tend to worship things that are the result of our work. Like what? Like what money can buy us. Like popularity and fame and the feeling that it gives us. Why do you have those things? Because I earned them. Because I did a thing and got attention. Those gods are fickle and broken and cannot help you. What's the difference between that and what the Bible describes? The Bible describes a true and living God who is bigger than you and more powerful than you, but that also means that he is able to say, this is the way and the only way. If you invent your own God, you can invent the way to please that God. It can be not eating pizza on Thursdays and you know, eating ice cream as a religious ritual and wearing a particular kind of clothes. You can make up any religion that you want and you can make the rules, but that's not going to help you because if it's something that you've invented and you've made and you've come up with the idea of the God, that God has no power to help you. The Greeks and the Romans did this. People living in remote places did this in various ways. People today do this. This passage says, don't worship things that you come up with on your own. Things that are dead and powerless and will fail you. Worship the true and living God. The Bible makes it very clear. Jesus died and then God raised him from the dead. Jesus died and now he lives forever. What does that mean for you and me? It means if we keep chasing after empty gods, dead gods, worthless gods, we will die and we will be separated from the one true God forever. But if we turn from empty gods, worthless gods, helpless gods that we have come up with on our own or worshiping ourselves when we know our strength fails, we die, our money gets lost and our houses fall apart after we are gone, we can't worship ourselves. We can't worship things we come up with. If we turn away from that to the true and living God, then what does Paul say is true? Jesus' death becomes your death. His victory over sin becomes your victory. Jesus' life free from sin becomes your life, and you will share in that life free from sin in God's presence someday. And even now, you have the down payment of that life in the presence of the Holy Spirit and in the reality that you can know God in a personal relationship here and now, which means God keeps his promises, God is alive, God is worthy of worship, so worship him.
I can't make you do that. And there's a sense in which you're not necessarily going to want to do that unless God's already doing a work in your heart. So all I can do is hold this out to you and say, why does the resurrection matter? Because if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, he's a dead and worthless God like all the rest. But because he is raised, he's coming back. And because he's coming back, you and I need to be ready. And the way that we can be ready is by coming to know him as our God and Savior and to worship him the way that those in heaven do so that when he comes back, we are with him. We're not over here hanging on to a raft that's sinking and a mountain that's falling down and all of these things, like all the people we see in the book of Revelation later, trying to run from the one true God that they realize is the one true God. I'm not saying to take a leap of faith. I'm saying that the only reasonable response to encountering the God who is alive is to serve him with all of who you are. Let's pray. Father, to the extent that we have caught a glimpse in whatever ways that the world is broken and needs to be made new, if you have brought us through some kind of experience that's caused us to slow down long enough from the busyness to ponder the nature of life, we've had a brush with death, someone we love has died, whatever it is that has, even for a few brief moments, days, weeks, months, caused us to realize there are things that matter far more than the things that we can see right around us, and there are things that matter about our souls. And as much as we try to be happy and find fulfillment in life going our own way, it doesn't work. If you've brought us to that point, help us to see that the next step is to realize that the answer is to turn to the one who is worthy, to see that Jesus is worthy, to see that God is worthy of worship, that the only way we can worship him is through his son Jesus and by the life that the Spirit gives us. Help us to remember that we are not worthy. It doesn't mean that we can't do things that are remarkable or we can't do things that deserve honor in some limited sense because of hard work and diligence and all those sorts of things. But we're not worthy to be worshipped as God. Our works don't last. Our lives end. Our strength runs out even during the course of our lives. We can never be gods ourselves. But there is a God who deserves our worship. Help us to worship him. Help us to remember the glorious truth of the resurrection and why we celebrate this day, both this Sunday and every time we gather. Jesus is worthy. He's the only way to God, the Father who is worthy. The Spirit stirs our heart to see that God is worthy. And we worship you for all of who you are, God. May that be true for all of us here this morning. May we be telling those around us about these truths so that they can come to worship and follow you as well. Thank you for bringing us here together today. pray this in Christ's name. Amen.